0: As you stand in body or spirit, will come before God's word, very likely as Jesus and the disciples would have by reciting what he called the great commandment in Hebrew known as the Shema. If you'll follow after me in Hebrew, we'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This summer, we're walking through the beginning of our story, which is the first eleven chapters in Genesis. Um, that's about fifteen weeks we're spending, and a third of that time is around the story that we start today—the uh, story of Noah and uh, the great flood. And so, you see the image of the flood on floodwaters on the screen today. We'll begin the story in chapter six, the first eight verses. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with a man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in these days, and afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old and men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. You've heard the old adage that it's what's inside that counts. And nowhere is that more true than when you come to the Bible. The Bible is always interested in internal matters because the Bible knows that internal precedes the external actions that come uh, from it. Uh, Some years ago, I was in uh, the back study uh, of my office and one of the other pastors came looking for a book. But um, before he left, he turned and he said to me, you know, when you croak, David, I'm like, Yes. He said, I'm going to use this verse at your funeral. Proverbs 423. Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And he's right. That is the basic biblical principle that our character yields our destiny inside uh, yields what comes from outside. Or as Jesus said, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So internal matters are very important. And yet when we get to the story of Noah and the flood, we tend to think of the external things that that we can see or that we can count. Uh, We think of the water or we think of the boat or how big the boat was and how the animals got on the boat and stayed there. And what happened to the fish anyway? And and we think about all sorts of external matters. But the Bible gives us a clue in chapter six, the first eight verses, that the most important part of the flood story is not the external things, water and animals and boats. The important thing are what is going on in the heart. And the Bible gives us this morning what I would call a tale of two hearts, a picture of two hearts. There's a heart that wounds. There's a heart that hurts uh, others. And then there is the heart that is wounded. And we want to look at those two hearts briefly this morning. First, let's look at the heart that is the wounding heart. The heart that hurts other people or the heart that breaks the heart of others. Um, one of the things that uh, that we see in this um, story this morning in, is verse five, where God talks about, uh, or the author talks about the wickedness of the human heart and that it's gotten so bad that it says that the only uh, inclinations and thoughts of the heart were only evil all the time. That is really a strong statement. That people got to the point where they were only thinking about evil all the time. And the phrase wicked or corrupt will show up seven times in chapter six and we'll finish chapter six next week. And that's interesting because in the creation story, chapter one, the word good shows up seven times. It's almost like what we have in chapter six is the undoing of God's beautiful creation. And it gets undone by hearts that will hurt others now, the hearts that hurt others get seen right away. And the very strange story at the start of chapter six, where it says the sons of God come down when they see the daughters of men are beautiful and they take them as wives and, and they create a race of people that cause all sorts of trouble. Now, some people look at this very strange verse and say, well, this must be how we get fallen angels. And that could be. Uh, I don't think we'll ever know for sure on earth what this story is completely about. But one of the interesting things is the way the phrase is used in Hebrew is this, that we're not talking about God's children. When you use the phrase sons of God, uh, The way, it's almost as if you would have a little g there if you could do it in English. And so what it is, it's like people who have God-like authority are another way to translate it. Some people translate the ones who are supposed to be in authority, the ones who are supposed to set the example, the ones who are supposed to lead the way on earth, they're the ones who are leading the misbehaving. And what we see about their heart is a number of things. They're impulsive. They look down and they uh, apparently from their positions, it could be if you think they're angel type figures from heaven, but if you think they're earthly rulers, they're looking down from their positions of authority and they see something they want, something that is attractive and they're impulsive and they go to get it. The other thing is they base their whole desires on external things. Uh, when they see the daughters of, the, of the, of men in this, uh, passage, they don't first ask, I wonder what her prayer life is like. Or I wonder what her favorite hobbies are. Or what's her family background? They judge only on externals. And the same verb that gets translated see here, is the same one that's used of Eve in chapter 3, verse 6, when Eve sees the fruit. Now, she will know some things about the fruit from what the serpent said, but it first gets attractive because of what it looks like on the outside. So one of the things we learn right away is the heart that is corrupt or a heart that's going to end up hurting other people is typically impulsive and uh, focused on externals. The other thing we learn about this heart is it's quite possessive. Uh, that they take these women in marriage, uh, but it's a marriage in name only because one doesn't get a sense of any sort of courtship. One doesn't get a sense uh, that the bride has much of a say in this situation at all, uh, that it is a relationship that's sort of inflicted upon them. It's extremely possessive and that the well-being and interests of the daughters of men are not typically, it looks like, considered here. It's all in the, uh, the imaginings of the, of the heart that wounds. They just want to possess and control. And the result is things spin out of control, so much so that the conclusion that I told you a minute ago is like, eventually humans get to where they only think about evil things all the time. That's all they can do. That's a heart that wounds. But there's a picture here that's rather remarkable of a wounded heart. And what's fascinating in this chapter is the wounded heart belongs to God. I mean, think how often uh, in the Bible you actually get a picture of what's going on inside God's heart. But we get a picture of God's heart today and we get a picture of it being uh, broken. God's heart is a wounded heart. God is grieving. God is sad that God even made humankind because they've spiraled so far out of control. Uh, And one of the reasons I share this story with you this morning is I think we are not God, but we all get the opportunity to be wounded by other people. We all get the opportunity to grieve. And so I think it's important to look at God's heart and say, what did God do when God was hurt? What did God do in this moment of uh, uh, where God is pictured as grieving, though it's not a moment, it's actually a um, generations-long experience of God's heart. I used to think that, uh, as Kate Bowler said in the book review Dinah did this past week, I used to think she said that grief was about the past that you've lost. But when she was struck with stage four cancer while she had her husband and a toddler, she realized that grief was more about the future that is lost. And I think God looks at the future of humankind and its potential and sees that it is spiraling downward, not going as God intended. So let's look at a few things that God does. Uh, We saw that the human heart or the heart apart from God can be very impulsive. God's heart tends to be very patient, it looks like. There are two ways to look at this. At one point, when God looks down at this the, the people who are supposed to be in authority out of control and the situation's out of control, God says, basically, I, I've had enough, I, I'm only going to deal with human beings for 120 years. Now, most people interpret that verse just at, at face value as saying, okay, nobody's going to live 969 years anymore like Methuselah that we talked about last week. And that could very well be. But others look at it, ancient commentators, and say what God is saying, which is like, I can't put up with this forever. It keeps going in this direction i 'll give it 120 years, which is about three generations. And uh, one of the interesting ways to look at the story is that in, in chapter five, we saw 10 generations from Adam all the way to Noah. and most of those generations, as far as we can tell, were not living as God intended. So sometimes when we get angry, we get the advice, we should count to 10. Well, God in this picture is upset and God counts to 10 generations. God has been extremely patient. So the first thing is that when humankind uh, is grieving God's heart, the first response of God is patience. Well, I'll watch this a little bit longer, see if they'll come back. Another interesting thing is it says that God saw the earth, that it was wicked and corrupt, and God saw that people were only thinking evil all the time. But the word see is a different word that we translate see for Eve saw the apple or the the sons of God, little g, uh, saw uh, these uh, attractive women. Here the word is more like God makes an investigation. God makes a judgment. In other words... God's not going to fly off the handle. God's going to investigate this thing. If you read forward in Genesis 18 to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, one of the things you notice is that God does a complete investigation, sends people down, angelic beings to check out Sodom and Gomorrah and to see if they are as wicked as it appears. So God's going to be very careful. So it reminds me that when our heart has been broken by someone else, that one of the things we need to do is before we respond, we in patience try to think about what's going on here. Let's investigate. Let's look at what's happened. Um, The late John Claypool used to say that when people have hurt you, you need to look a few directions. One direction is look behind the people. In other words, what is it in their history that may have contributed to them taking this, uh, this act against you or something they didn't do for you in their life? In other words, uh, people uh, are the result of a lot of things that have happened in their life. So he says he always invites himself to look behind. What was their family background like? What was their day at work like? Uh, you, whatever the situation is, you get back to it. Take the time to investigate when people have hurt you. Look behind. Then you look as best you can within. What, what is going on in their life that I know of right this moment? And I think that's the advantage God has over us is God is able to look inside every person and find out what is really going on. The story of uh, David when is made king and the taller brothers are not made king. Samuel is a little surprised and God said to Samuel, look, I don't look at people the way others do. I look at their heart. God's able to look on the inside. But think for a moment when you're struggling with someone, what's going on in their, mo- in their life right now? Can- do you have any sense at all of what it might be? Remember Renee Brown's advice we talked about uh, a few times in the past. She said one of the things her counselor taught her was that you should generally assume that people are doing just about the best they can. That however they've acted or failed to act, they're doing the best they can at that moment. And that if we knew what was really going on in their life, we might be more understanding. Frederick Buechner, the great Christian writer in an autobiography talks about his father and he says, my father died of heart trouble. And uh, when you press him on it, he says, it's true. His father uh, went and uh, got in the car in the garage in the 1930s, turned on the car, let it run and uh, killed himself. But he says, my father died of a broken heart. What is interesting is, lest we uh, say something about his father leaving a wife and his son behind, uh, he said one of the things his mother found was that Gone with the Wind had just been published. And in the back of, that, of Margaret Mitchell's book, there was a note from his father to his mother. And basically it did two things. One, he told her how much he loved her, but then he closed with the sentence. But unfortunately, he said to her, I am no damn good. There was a, a struggle inside his own life, a deep sense of shame that is known only from within, but the outside could not have seen. So when, we, when our heart is broken, we try to understand the people who've broken it, both from what's behind, what's within. And then the Bible would even suggest looking what's ahead. One of the interesting things in the Old Testament is sometimes there'll be crimes and they'll prescribe the death penalty for the crimes. Now, a couple of things you need to know. One is that the death penalty in the day of Jesus and mostly even before that day was rarely, if ever, carried out. It was on the books, but there are all sorts of ways they can maneuver around it to where they wouldn't do it. But the second thing you need to know is this, that when you ask, well, why would somebody be killed for doing this thing? Often the rabbinic response is the death penalty is prescribed not for what they have done, but for what they will do if they continue on this course. Able to, God is able to look behind within, but yet God also looks ahead and see the direction of humankind is going completely down the drains. There will only be more destruction. And so God makes a decision and it is a hard and difficult decision. But when, when we understand what's going on in God's heart, we realize God's not acting like a tyrant in chapter six. God's acting like a parent whose heart is broken for the direction that the children have decided to take. But then God does one more thing. God not only is patient and then when God has to act, God will act out of sorrow and not anger, but God never closes his door completely. Some of you are Star Wars fans. You may remember the discussion between Yoda and Obi-Wan. And Obi-Wan believes that Luke Skywalker is the only hope, but Yoda knows that Luke has a, has a twin sister. Princess Leia. And so the quote is from Yoda, Obi-Wan. No, he says, there is another. And so when you get to the end of chapter six and you think all of humankind and everything is going to, it's all over, the game is over. It's almost as if you get a picture of Noah and God says, no, there is another. Even after God's heart has been broken, God leaves the door open for humans to start again and leaves the door open for humans to change. One of the things that I've tried to make it a practice in my life is sometimes I'll get emails or notes that people write generally in haste. And, and, and sometimes they're a little cruel or they're overstated. One of the things I try not to do is hold that to the person. I try to leave the door cracked. So either A, I don't respond or I just say, well, thank you, I didn't see it like that. Uh, but not try to back people further into a corner. I want to, as best I can, even when I'm wounded, leave the door open because you never know. I mean, the final chapter on any of us is not yet written. It's hard to know uh, where things are finally by what's going on at this moment. You've probably heard the, the great Buddha story about about a guy that loses his only horse. And so people say to him, well, I am so sorry for that bad news that you lost your horse. And his response is bad news, good news, who can tell? Well, sure enough, the horse came back and brought like 10 other horses with him, And they said, wow, what amazing good news and good fortune. Look at all these horses you now have. And he said, well, good news, bad news, who can say? Well, his son was trying to break in. One of the new horses was thrown by the horse Uh, broke his arm and his leg and was put on the shelf uh, for a while. And so people said, I'm so sorry for the bad thing that happened to your son when he was breaking that horse. And the old man said, well, bad news, good news, who can say? And then a war broke out and all the young men of that village went to fight another village and all the young men who fought were killed, except of course for his son, with his broken arm and broken leg who couldn't go into battle. And so people said to him, wow, that is so fortunate that your son did not go into battle. That's such good news. And you know what he said, good news, bad news. Who can say this side of heaven, it's always too early for us to make assessments about our life or about the lives of other people. But one of the things we know biblically is this, is that God has the last word, And the last word will always be a word of mercy and grace and hope. Very hard things are about to happen to humankind in the chapters ahead, but there is another. There is a hope.